0: Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I am your host, Cody McBroom, and today we have a podcast topic all about genetics. So I wanted to touch on this topic because I get this question all the time, um, and I often think that's not just a question, but it's also an excuse as to why people aren't working hard. It's kind of a scapegoat for a lot of people. I think, well, you know, it's just not in the cards for me. My genetic makeup sucks, and uh, because my genetics suck, I don't see the point of trying hard, right? Why should I try to get lean? Why should I try to build muscle? Why should I try to be above average if I have average genetics? And and I wanted to talk about this because I don't believe that it is warranted. Now, I will say, I dug into the research. Um, genetics do matter, obviously, but they don't matter as much as you would think. And the reason I wanted to dive into this was partially because um i had a strong feeling that the evidence would support my beliefs uh, and i also wanted to bring fact into this to let people try harder right or maybe learn more about how much genetics actually affect us and then try to give people a better solution or a better route to still achieving results because at the end of the day, we all know people who have gotten lean, who have gotten muscular, who have performed well, who didn't have great genetics, who say they don't have great genetics, who clearly look like they don't have the best genetics, but somehow they still got it done. And I wanted to put some science as to why that happened. I wanted to provide some kind of contextual proof as to why these people still got results and that is exactly what we're gonna do today. So today I'm gonna dive into the science of genetics and whether or not genetics actually matter in dictating the results you want to see. So we will cover genetics versus epigenetics because I think it's important to understand the two of them. Um, And there's a lot of different types of epigenetics but i think i want to cover it in just a kind of brief overview and then we'll we'll go from there uh, then we're going to talk about the mental side effect here so there's a placebo aspect that matters when in regards to genetics and whether or not they matter uh, we, i want to talk about strength and performance with genetics i want to talk about muscle with strength and genetics uh, and i want to talk about fat loss with strength and genetics and then i want to talk about um, the mindset and how that plays a role in here again Bringing in some placebo into it. And then just kind of wrap up with a conclusion of what I think you should be really focused on or doing with all this information in front of you. So I have a lot of notes here. They are going to go into the show notes. So you guys will be able to see my notes. You guys will be able to see the, the research that I used. In um, like most of these podcasts, again, this is just a generous favor. They don't know that I'm doing this. I am not affiliated with them. And I don't get any brownie points or kudos or kickback or. or money for doing this, but I highly suggest you guys check out mass research review. There are only a few, uh, there, there are only a few good research reviews out there. And in my opinion, mass research Review is the best. Um, I really do enjoy weightology from James Krieger as well. Uh, however, mass research review is where I get a lot of my contact, uh, content, Ideas and a lot of my content backing, right? When I have an idea, so for example, in this podcast, I decided I wanted to do this. I started looking into myself, and then I always go to mass and I go, What have they looked into? And lo and behold, as always, there's always a research review on the topics I want to discuss, if not more. So I've yet to find a topic that they haven't dug into the research on at this point because there's so many issues. So if you're a coach, if you're somebody who likes science, it's a really cheap. Subscription to sign up for, and it's really worth it. Uh, I highly suggest you check out Mass Research Review, ran by Dr. Eric Helms, Eric Trexler, Greg Knuckles, and Mike Sordos. Now, Let's get into it. So the first thing is genetics versus epigenetics. So genetics are the study of how different qualities called traits are passed down from parents to child. Genetics helps explain what makes you unique, why family members look alike, and why some diseases run in families. When we trace the paths of these qualities, we are following packages of information called genes. So this is obviously quoted. I just read that. Um, This is quite literally in your DNA, right? So we all have genes. They are in your DNA. I have blue eyes. That is probably genetic, right? My genes are going to determine my eye color, plain and simple. Genes might play a role in how tall you are. Genes will play a role in a lot of these physical attributes. They will all also play a role in physiological and psychological attributes that you have. Genetics are a thing and they do predetermine a lot for us. Epigenetics is the study of how your behaviors and environment can cause changes that affect the way your genes work. Unlike genetic changes, epigenetic changes are reversible and do not change your DNA sequence, but they can change how your body reads a DNA sequence. So the way I like to look at this is your environment, your habit, your behaviors, the things that you ingest, the things that you do, the way that you act, the people you surround yourself with, the daily activities you do, those things can influence the way your genes respond. So you may have a predisposition to a disease, for example, and that is a genetic predisposition. However, the way that you set up your environment, your behavior, your habits, your lifestyle, that may increase the likelihood of you getting that disease. So you may be able to st- stay away from that disease altogether, even though you are predispositioned. So your genetics are predetermined as a higher likelihood to Acu- uh, acquire that disease, right? You might be at higher risk of this disease due to your genetics. If your epigenetics are in a favorable position, you may be able to avoid getting this disease altogether because you have placed your your habits, your lifestyle, your environment, all these factors in such a healthy and good place that it allows you to avoid this predisposition, this disease, even though you have this predisposition, right? Which is going to be really important because I think a lot of people need to remember that number one. Epigenetics considers childhood environment. So although your genetics are what make you as a child, it's, it's the genes that you were passed down from your parents, the way your parents raise you, the environment you live in, all those kind of things play a role in your epigenetics. This is often why, and we probably all know people like this, I know uh, at least a few off the top of my head uh, wrestlers that I grew up with, right? These, these people were wrestlers since sixth or seventh grade in middle school. Um, and wrestling, although they weren't resistance training in the gym necessarily, some of them may have been, but they were most likely doing bodyweight stuff. I remember um, wrestling coaches making the wrestlers do walking lunges around the, the gym, burpees, running, all those kind of things. And they were wrestling, right? They're practicing wrestling constantly. Wrestling is a, a great form of resistance training. I mean, realistically, any martial, mixed martial art is, and wrestling would be included in that, where you are applying resistance and force isometrically to muscles in sequence and dynamically, you're moving through positions, contracting and, and going through eccentric and concentrics and isometrics and all these kind of things that is stress in the muscle. So these kids are going through that at such a young age that their body starts to shift at a very young age Now, I know some of these people, and this is why I said I know a few people in this category who grew up doing that, and now they don't train, they don't play sports, they don't do anything, yet they still have this muscular build, and people would say, like, God, you're just genetically gifted. However, I know a couple people whose family is not genetically gifted, although they look like they were genetically gifted. Why is that? because they were an elite wrestler from a very young age, so they were conditioned to form into this way, and it takes very little to maintain that, because that's how they, you know, were so malleable as a young age, it's also why in Russia, uh, way back in the Soviet Union, they would take very young children, they would put them through these camps for training to produce these savage Olympic lifters, and you would get these monstrous Russians, why? It's because they were preconditioned at such a young age. That's their epigenetics. So their genes might not have been the best, although I think they did. were pretty selective about that too. But however, they go into this this camp at a young, young age, and that camp at such a young age, at a preteen, at an adolescent age, is you know, taking somebody who's very malleable at a young age and it's turning them into this athlete and this, this specimen and this, this genetic anomaly. However, a lot of that is epigenetics. And that's, that's a big take home point. I want you guys to understand because a lot of people you may look at and go, man, they're just so genetically gifted. Well, What do they do as a kid? You know, maybe they were way more active, ate way healthier because their parents, maybe they, uh, played sports constantly. So they, their epigenetics were in a very favorable position because of those things. Um, The other thing to consider with epigenetics is that even to this day, as you age, your environment still plays a massive role. And although those, those changes take a very long time, they can shift how your genes act. They're not going to change your genes, but they can change the way your genes respond and act to certain stimuluses and things because you are changing the environment around you. So I think epigenetics is a very, very important thing to understand because it is not genetics. It doesn't change your genes. However, it changes how your genes respond to certain things. And if we know that, we can try to control as much as possible in our environment and in our lifestyle to make our genes more favorable to us. Um, whether that's to prevent something like a disease or that's to enhance our physical results. Um, Now, the first thing I wanna pull up is that this might all be in your head, right? And the reason I wanna pull this up first, because I think it's a good way to set context, before we dive into some of the studies that do show differences with actually, uh, show actual genetic differences happening, uh, I want to go over this because this kind of shows that it might just be placebo, and I think this is a good context. And we're, we're going to return to this topic towards the end, but we'll start with this. Um, and this study that I'm going to review here is called "Learning One's Genetic Risk Changes Physiologically," uh, or sorry, physiology, independent of actual gene genetic risk. This is a really interesting study to read if you if you're into re- research and stuff. Um, but basically, what they did is they took two groups. Um, they told Either group that they have good or bad genes for aerobic fitness, regardless of the accuracy of information told to the individual's performance followed what they believed. So what they saw in this research study, uh, and this is in nature.com, this is, uh, it's, uh, which is nature, human behavior. It's a really good website for, for great research. It's a good place to source your stuff. Um, but it was more about perceived outcomes. So essentially what they did is they took two groups. They did test their aerobic fitness prior to the study. Then they did, a, quote unquote, genetic testing, which right now we don't have a lot of research to prove is very accurate. On top of that, there's so many different gene pools that it's very hard to determine if they the results even matter, which we'll get into it in a sec. But they took these people, they did an aerobic test, they got their baseline test levels um, for aerobic fitness, and then they put them through a genetic test, and then they told them what their genetic test results were. They told one group that their genetic results were in favor of aerobic fitness because there is a gene that may promote better aerobic fitness than others. And then they told the other group that their genetic fitness was not favorable. So you had either the bad gene or the good gene for aerobic fitness. And the results followed much closer to what they were told than what their actual genes showed because some of the people that they told had good genes, they actually had the bad genes. And some of the people they told had bad genes actually had the good genes for aerobic fitness. However, those who were told they had the bad gene ended up doing poorer on a follow-up test for aerobic fitness. Those who were told had the good gene for aerobic fitness ended up doing better on the aerobic test after they were told that, which means that even though they may have this one genetic predisposition or this certain gene that may promote better aerobic fitness, if they were told they had the bad gene, they did bad because the mind is going to control a lot of what we actually do perceive and produce from a result perspective as seen in this, and as in seen in a couple other studies I'm going to bring up in a sec. But this is a really cool study because it just shows that it might just be in your head, which means you might not want to look too deep into any of this because if you can just put yourself in a good mindset of my genes are fine, I am going to progress, which most of us are because there's actually a really wide range of quote unquote normal genes. And then there's a very, very small fraction of really good genes and really bad genes most of us are in this range somebody might have better genes than us but they're all most of us are in this range of normal genes and it's really just about perceiving those genes and just working hard and taking your time with it, which again, I'm going to get to in a sec, uh, but there's so many different genes that we can't determine the result off of just one single test anyway, because we can only test for one thing, but there's many genes that intersect and in, and, in, and, and correlate and cause different things to happen. Whether this aerobic gene may cause us to be more aerobically fit, but this other gene may actually cause the opposite leveling us out, right? Evening the, the playing field again. Um, But the study was very, very cool. Again, that is learning one's genetic risk changes physiology independent of actual gene risk, actual genetic risk, which just goes to show that if, uh, if you're told you have good genes, you got good genes. If you're told you have bad genes, you got bad genes. So my advice to you off of that study is to stop telling yourself that you are Ungifted genetically. There's a lot of people who just say, and I'm guilty of this too, like, ah, I just, I have bad genes. I have the worst genes. I just don't have good genes. Stop telling yourself that, you know? And, and here, you know, a perfect example of this is I actually started to reverse that statement in my head once I learned more about epigen- uh, epigenetics, because, you know, my family actually has great genes, to be honest with you. I have good genes, technically. I had a horrible epigenetics. Um, When I was young, if I look at my parents, my dad was a black belt martial artist who ran a karate studio for a long time and he was a pretty high level baseball player, just like high school level and stuff. Um, So really, really athletic his whole life. Again, mixed martial arts, constantly being fit, to this day he's never been overweight or obese he had a you know a period of time where stress hit high with work and he kind of gained some weight but never like a serious health issue my mom was a soccer player and, a, and did a lot of gymnastics she was always fit to this day is fit very outdoorsy my grandfather uh on my dad's side is very average not either way uh my grandfather on my mom's side was uh actually an olympic kayaker he was a uh gymnast he did the rings which is crazy good good to be fit um he travels the world right now he's 85 and he's still swimming labs swimming in lakes traveling the world hiking and, and literally traveling the world everywhere he sends us pictures it's wild what he does um he's from hungary and he's just been an outdoorsman his whole life but the point is you know my brother when we were growing up he had a six-pack he was lean um soccer player great you know good genes i just was black sheep i was always chubby i had an eating problem i didn't uh, wasn't as active as anybody else in my family um That's just how it was. So the way I lived my life as a young kid, not knowing it, eating too much, snacking too much, being really addicted to candy and and fatty foods like cheeses and milk and stuff like that, I was just overweight. I ate too much and I didn't do enough activity and I was malleable. So I ended up kind of creating epigenetics that set me up and for a really bad place to start my fitness journey. And that's the big takeaway here too, is as I keep going through this, you'll notice genes play a bigger role in your starting point rather than your finishing point. Um, now, so point being, it's all in your head. Once I realized what epigenetics were and I realized like, you know what, my genetics actually aren't bad. My epigenetics were, but that was, you know, by choice as a young kid, which I didn't think about back then, but now I can choose to change my lifestyle, my environment, my fitness, my routine, my health, and I can choose to believe that my genes are just fine and it's actually the epigenetics of how I was living that was bad and I can change how I was living and over the course of however many years, however long it takes, I can change the way my maintenance is and now I have done that from years and years of practicing this. Um, The next study is uh, something that kind of goes on the contrary. It actually does matter for performance and strength, mostly. And this one is called ACTN, so actin-3 genotype, which is a specific gene they find, um, is associated with human elite athletic performance. And basically what they found is this specific gene was seen in majority of elite sprinters versus endurance athletes. So they tested a lot of these endurance athletes and sprinters, and what they found is that there was a difference in a specific gene. So these sprinters, for example, and I don't know if they actually dug into if the endurance athletes had a specific gene, but knowing that there is a gene that may promote better aerobic ability it would be common that maybe there is uh, a, a gene that helps people with more endurance-based uh, attributes, but these sprinters had a very specific gene that allowed them to be a little bit better with uh, force production, right? So they were actually able to practice force production and power output better, and it made them into elite sprinters. So, um, and I should be careful with that. It didn't make them into elite sprinters. It helped them in the journey to becoming an elite sprinter. Elite sprinters, you got to give them credit. They've practiced and trained and weight trained and sprinted and ran for years and years and years to become where they're at. This gene just gave them a little extra boost. And I think a lot of it too is uh, a natural ability, right? So when we're young and we start playing sports, most people who played sports when they were a child played all sports at one point and they stuck with one, right? So when I was a kid, I played basketball. I played t-ball. I played, I skateboarded. I played uh, soccer. I did everything I could, right? But... Once I got to a certain age, I stuck with soccer. Why is that? Well, it's because whatever it was made me just a little better at soccer. My dad didn't play soccer. My mom did. But I just, that's just what I did, you know? And it partially probably because my brother did, but why did my brother? Because he was way better at soccer than he was at baseball or basketball or anything. And so when you gravitate towards something, it's usually what you're naturally good at. So I think we end up naturally finding these things. Now, this may not affect body composition whatsoever, because if you choose high intensity sprints or longer distance runs for your fat loss tool to get lean for cardio... We, we know at this point, it's all caloric expenditure. You can actually do either one and see a really good advantage. And you probably know which one you do better at, right? So maybe you just stick with what feels a little bit more natural. And that's as far as you need to take this. You don't need to overthink this. You don't need to get gene testing or anything like that. Um, so really, really important thing to consider. But the point is, is it may matter a little bit. And uh, they did find that there was a similar gene in all of these elite sprinters that may contribute to their ability to become an elite sprinter. And it was not found in endurance athletes. However, uh, this next study shows something that I really want to point out for that last study and all other studies on genes in general. And, and you know, it, it's basically saying that, that that actin-3, right? So actin-3 did get seen in elite sprinters more often and it may contribute to, it's associated with, human elite athletic performance. It's not the reason, but it is associated with this. We gotta believe that it helps. However, that's one out of 22 genes that could potentially help performance, which still leaves 95% up to chance so even if you have that one actin three gene that is one gene out of 22 which means that if all other 22 are still up in the air that's a 95 percent chance for any of us so i could go test for this actin three not have that gene in me but we don't have these special tests or studies to show the 95 percent of other genes that could contribute to this performance which means that it's really still up in the air so we can't take this one study and just put all of our eggs in that basket and be like oh well you can only be an elite spinner if you have that actin three it's kind of like, oh, well, sweet. I got the luck of the draw. The one gene that we have researched in regards to becoming an elite sprinter, I just happen to have, right? That's a positive thing, but it's luck of the draw, right? It doesn't mean that you don't have other genes that would promote it. It just means that you don't have that specific one. And again, it's a 95% chance that there's still other genes that you may have. Um, and I'm going to quote this study right now because this study was called Genetics of Muscle Strength and Power, Polygenetic profile similarity limits skeletal muscular performance. So what this is, uh, when when I say polygenetic, just for you guys to understand, it means many genes, right? So uh, a gene or a gene pool, you could even say, is a polygenetic thing that we're looking into. It means multiple genes. Um, So quoting them is using typical genotype frequencies, the probability of any given individual possessing an optimal polygenetic Profile was calculated as 0.003. No, I'm sorry, 0.0003. So 0.303% for the world population. Hey guys, I want to take a quick moment to shout out the podcast sponsor of today, and that is Giant Lifting. You can head over to giantlifting.com and use the coupon code TCM5 to save a little bit of cash when you're at your checkout. Giant Lifting is a local brand to me here in Washington, but they are spanning over the entire country and eventually probably gonna grow beyond that because they are a rapidly growing fitness equipment company. In fact, I can't say this for sure, but I would venture out to believe they're the fastest growing fitness equipment company there is on that market because it's insane how quickly they're growing. And it comes to no surprise. They have a five out of five customer rating out of 1400 reviews, almost 1500 reviews, five out of five stars. That's unheard of, and the truth is They have better shipping. They have better quality. They have a wide variety, and their customer service truly feels like a local brand. We all know those local small-town brands that just feel good when you get to talk to them. You get to order from them. Their customer service is more responsive to you. That is Giant, and that's why I love Giant Lifting, not only because I know them personally, but my gym is full of their stuff, and our clients' garage gyms, CrossFit gyms, actual gyms are all full of their equipment too now because we've been recommending them so frequently. So once again, guys, if you need fitness equipment whether you own a gym a crossfit box or you're in your garage gym they have what you need you're going to get it for a better deal you're going to have better customer service shipping is going to be faster and cheaper which they make sure of and you are not going to be dissatisfied of the quality of the product i can promise you that so head over to giantlifting.com i'll put a link of that in the description of this podcast you can follow them on instagram at giant underscore lifting and make sure you use the coupon code tcm5 at checkout Without any further ado, let's jump back into the podcast. So what does this mean? It means that the likelihood of anybody having optimal genes for maximizing muscle strength, power, performance, all these things is 0.00003, three zeros. So 0.0003. That's very, very low. That's a very unlikely chance that you're going to be genetically gifted. Now, that means there's anomalies out there. That means there's people who are optimal, right? But the reason I say this is because there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of athletes that are professional athletes that seem like genetic freaks. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands of physique athletes on Instagram as influencers that people say are just genetic anomalies. But this this goes to show that that can't be true because that would be assuming that every single person in this 0.00003% is an Instagram influencer or a pro. NFL, baseball, basketball, whatever, sport player, UFC fighter, anything, right? It would be assuming that. That's already not making sense to the odds. And that's assuming that every single one of these are genetic optimal anomalies is also out there in the public eye and not like at home, doesn't like Instagram, and is just jacked, right? So uh, it's very unlucky to be optimal. Now, again, polygene Polygenetic means that many. So there are many genes that can contribute. Does that mean you can't have some and not others? Absolutely. You wouldn't be optimal- genetically speaking though. And my guess is that if there's a huge pool of genes and you have one of these many genes, that's great. That's going to help you. And this person has one of many genes. We probably all have one of many genes. It might be better than the other or whatever, but it's very unlikely that we have none. And it's very unlikely that we have all. And that's the big point. It's very hard, uh, physiologically speaking, and just from a, from a world population perspective to assume that there's absolutely perfect genetic people. Now, that's performance, that's muscle, that's all that. What about fat loss? This is what a lot of people uh, wanna talk about. And there is a study called FTO Genetic variants, Dietary Intake and Body Mass Index, insights from uh, 177,330 individuals. Um, and it's very hard to tell in the research if it is 177,000 or if it's two groups, one of 177 and one of 33. Um, and I'm gonna pull it up and look and see if I can determine that. Um, Nope, it is 177,000. Wow, that's a lot of people. That's a huge pool of people for this study, which makes it even better. The FTO gene is uh, the most is the gene that's most associated with obesity risk. Uh, that's in the scientific literature literature that science is currently aware of. Um, and this is basically, again, this is like one of the only genes that they're aware of that they can actually link to obese individuals. However, its independent effect is only about 0.3% Uh, BMI points, which corresponds to about 2.2 pounds, right? a kilogram of body weight, which is what their study actually said, but I pulled 2.2 for the listeners. Um, It's tied to higher BMI and dietary intake, which means that people with this gene may have a higher BMI, but they also, for whatever reason, tend to have a higher protein intake. There's two things here. We know BMI isn't the most accurate, and I didn't see even in the people who reviewed this research, which I trust more than myself when looking at research, just being humbly honest because I'm not a researcher. They didn't talk about this, so I'm going to Assume it's it's not completely accurate, but I think it's something to consider and look into. Individuals who consume more protein intake typically have more muscle mass, and if you have more muscle mass, you might have a higher BMI as well. So, my question is: I I really would like a little bit more context and research and explanation onto why these individuals with this gene also had a higher dietary protein intake. That part didn't make sense to me, but the point is, is the FTO genotype. Is uh, only gonna be about 0.3 BMI points, and if it's 2.2 pounds over the long term, that's just not that much. Yes, that means that you may be more likely to be fractionally your closer to obesity, you might be more predispositioned to gain weight. However, there was another study called FTO genotype and weight loss, systematic review and meta analysis of 9,563 individual participant data from eight randomized control trials. So again, a big pool of research and to quote them, these findings show that individuals carrying the minor allele, I can never pronounce that word right, uh, respond equally well to dietary physical activity or drug-based weight loss interventions. What this Means is that although it may set you up for a worse starting point, although these individuals did have that gene, it didn't affect their weight loss journey or their ability to lose weight through means of dietary restrictions or caloric restriction or weight loss interventions like physical activity or even drugs. So weight loss medicine, and I don't know what they would have used there, but there are some prescription-based pills that can help that are coming out. And then obviously back in the day, there was things like ephedrine and stuff like that. Um, So this is where I kind of you know want people to remember um, again that it's a polygenetic situation. There are many genes that affect weight loss and obesity. There's merely one out of many uh, that, this gene is showing and this means we could have counteracting genes as well. So we may have this uh, FTO gene and that may predisposition us but we may also have some of those other genes that position us better for performance or endurance or strength or muscle, right? So there's all these different gene pools. So we can't necessarily say that, well, if you have the FTO gene, you're screwed. Your genetics are predispositioned for you to gain weight because if you also have a predisposition to be like a genetic freak on the football field, well, that caloric expenditure is going to outweigh your ability to be, be overweight. And we know by research, the best way to maintain a healthy body is physical activity and quality energy balance, right? So I, I tend to think that they, they weigh each other out quite regularly. Um, but again, there is a gene that is associated with obesity. It's something to point out. Uh, it's a fact. That it's a genetic predisposition. I do believe that, in, and obviously in this, this other study they showed if you are attacking your fitness goals with physical activity, dietary intake, supplementation, things like that, you can work against that. And although you have the FTO gene, it doesn't actually uh, negatively impact your ability to lose weight. So when people say that I can't lose weight, I have bad genes, it's, it's actually inaccurate. And it's quite literally an excuse. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just, it's just a fact. And it's understood. And, and I personally completely understand why people would use that as a scapegoat or use that as an excuse because they are preconditioned to believe that. There's a lot of things in the media and in in the world that would make us believe that our genetics play such a big role that that's stopping us from losing weight. But the truth is that gene, if you do have it, may actually set you up for a worse starting point, which really just means it puts you in a position to need to lose weight, but it doesn't affect your ability to actually lose the weight that you have. So Again, your genes are more likely, from what I can tell, this is my interpretation and belief, your genes are more likely to put you in a position where you have weight to lose rather than putting you in a position where you can't lose the weight you have. So although your genes may suck, and even that is going pretty far because you might have one gene out of many that suck, it's more likely epigenetics, which is your lifestyle factors that contribute to. And when you say, my genes suck because my family's overweight, my parents are overweight, Most likely, your parents are overweight from epigenetics. They're overweight because of things that they did, ways they lived their life, physical activity that wasn't present, dietary intake that wasn't controlled, and therefore, when they raise their children in the same exact manner, the children end up becoming overweight as well and this is not a shot at parents. Parenting is not easy, and getting your kid to eat healthy is the hardest thing, and this is coming from a nutritionist. <laughs> I am somebody who prides himself on healthy eating nutrition. It is very hard to get your child to eat healthy. I am experiencing this full-fledged, and I remember before my child was born, before my daughter was born, always saying, my daughter's not eating Pop-Tarts and cookies and all that crap. I'm gonna, she's going to be healthy. I'm going to make sure of it. I'm going to start it from the beginning so she doesn't know any better, That's bullshit. Any parent will tell you that is not going to happen. Otherwise, they're just not going to eat. I mean, there's times where I'm like, you gotta eat sometime, and then they don't, and you're like, holy shit, get her some calories because she needs to eat, right? So she's pretty healthy, but we, I'd be the first to admit that we give her snacks and all that stuff too because she's a child. She needs to experience that. There's just a balance there, right? And we're even learning that. However, my point with this is, is that. Science basically shows it's more likely epigenetics. And if your parents were overweight and you're overweight, it's less likely that it's their genes that caused them to be that overweight and therefore were passed down to you making you overweight. And more likely the fact that the way they lived caused them to be overweight and they raised you living the same way, which means that your epigenetics were that of a poor situation, poor as in uh, not ideal for body composition, like favorable body composition results in health. Now, what that does mean is you can change it, right? You can't change your literal genetic makeup. However, if you can realize that human beings weren't designed to be overweight, therefore, all along, it's probably been a genetic thing. And although once you gain a lot of weight, it is harder to lose. And even if you do have this one gene that makes your starting point a little heavier, even if you're heavier set, that's fine you can still lose weight because that gene doesn't stop calorie balance and, and physical activity and energy expenditure from working to get you to lose more weight. So we can kind of throw that out and throw it in the trash that this, you know, that your genes are making you not lose weight. We can say that your genes maybe gave you a gene that makes it, uh, you at a heavier starting point and that your epigenetics and the way you were raised cause you to be overweight, but we can change our epigenetics with lifestyle changes. And that's the thing I'm really trying to hammer home. Um, Now, before I kind of get into a little bit more of the mindset and my conclusion, I want to touch on muscle growth real quick. There's a little bit of stuff here. So um, one study that was pretty cool, um, didn't give us a lot of context or information or answers, but it it was a cool study because it was on twins, but it's called Fitness and Strength Responses to Distinct Exercise Modes in Twins. Studies of Twin Responses to Understand Exercise as the Therapy um, Study. So uh, that's the STRUETH, Studies of Twin responsive to Understand Exercise as a Therapy. Uh, people try to get really clever with these names and acronyms sometimes. Um, quoting them, our findings indicate that individual responsiveness differs between exercise modalities. Low responders to one may be rescued by switching to an alternative, alternate mode of exercise, and genes may not play as large of a role as previously estimated from cross-sectional data for exercise training adaptations. So the reason I think that's important is because they did a study on twins and they were using different, and these these twins are identical twins, meaning they have the same genetic makeup, quite literally. It's, it's the most controlled atmosphere you can create for testing genes in physical activity, really. Um, and these individuals have the same genes and they try different types of training uh, modalities to get them to see physical changes and results. Um, and uh, what they found is that Yes, you might have low responsiveness, but it's very individual. So again, going back to what I said before, it's not that you're genetically predispositioned to have bad responsiveness to exercise. It's that you're choosing the wrong exercise for you to be most responsive to. You're going to see results from any kind of exercise. However, there probably is a type of exercise. Um, there's probably also a type of diet, diet that is probably going to work best for you. Less so on the diet because calories, inverse calories out can kind of weed out any genetic type of predisposition. However, with exercise, it does matter a little bit. And uh, that's also what the next study is going to refer to. So, drink some water real quick. Apologies. The next study is genetic determinism of fiber type proportion in human skeletal muscle. And basically what they found here, and and I'll link this in the show notes too, um, about 45% of muscle fiber dominance is actually determined by genetic makeup. Uh, Much of the rest is determined by childhood, so epigenetics really which can be considered epigenetics in a way. However, this leaves less in our control to change. But this is just your starting point, not your progress to be made. In other words, genetics may play a role in the speed at which you succeed, but not necessarily the definitive process of improving. And that's my words, not quoted from anybody else. But what I can tell from those two studies for building muscle and adaptations from exercise specifically – When we look at muscle and genetics, there's a few things to consider here. Number one, individuality matters. So your genes aren't gonna play a role in your responsiveness as much as they are your starting point. So again, going back to we have certain genes that predisposition us from the beginning and that means our starting point is at a certain spot, right? We all can make progress, it's just more about the starting point and the speed at which we make progress, right? So people who we think are genetically gifted, they're just making progress faster so it seems that way and in a way that could be considering them genetically gifted. But we also know that they may have just found the best type of exercise for them because 45% of your muscle fiber type dominance is determined by uh, genetics, which means that what if I'm training like a sprinter or an Olympic lifter or something like that and my fiber type dominance is completely genetically made up to be a slow twitch dominant person, which means I should be bodybuilding and doing long runs for cardio, not sprinting for cardio and doing Olympic lifting and power development for strength training. So what this means is that I could Be good at either one of them, but I'm probably going to respond better to the other, which I'm going to get to my recommendations there, but a lot of it comes down to finding what you respond best to and then sticking with it. You and your buddy might start training. You might see that that person might be way genetically gifted. Maybe she got results super well or he got results super quick and you didn't. Well, you guys are doing the same program. They may be genetically predisposition to respond better to the type of training you're doing versus the type of training that you should be doing, which means you shouldn't be doing the same program, which goes to show tailored coaching is pretty damn important. No pun intended. But I also remember my training partner for years was very fast twitch dominant. We would do explosive work, box jumps, sprints, power lifts, low reps, and he would respond so well. And it would take me forever to make progress. And I just didn't feel good doing it. I didn't recover well. I didn't have as much fun with it. Then we would shift gears and go through an accumulation phase, increase volume, do more bodybuilding movements, higher reps. I would respond super well. I always felt super good in the session. I was motivated. I didn't I didn't need as much recovery. And he had the opposite. So we learned early on that, and we didn't know why, but we were just like, man, this is what you respond best to. This is what I respond best to. We love training together, but maybe we should tweak how we're training while we're training together so we can both have optimal results, right? So you got to really listen to your body and see what's going on. And it also means you got to be patient. Now, The last thing I wanna touch on before my conclusion is the mindset effect here. I already kind of talked about how placebo can, you can kind of placebo yourself into it. Um, And there's a lot of studies on what's called expectancy. So what you expect to see essentially as a result. And that's exactly what the aerobic study showed us as well. These people were tested for genetic uh, genes or or genetic testing before and after, or I'm sorry, before their second bout or test of aerobic fitness. And depending on what they expected, they got the result of that, right? So if they expected to have a bad score because they were told they had bad genes, they got a bad score. If they were expecting to have a good score and perform well because they were told they had good genes, they did perform well and they did get a good score. And these kind of double down on that. And the first one is really, really cool. It's called Mind Over Milkshakes. Mindsets, not just nutrients, determine ghrelin response. So um, in a nutshell, I'm gonna read this. This is kind of a summary that I took from a study. Two groups were drinking milkshakes, both which were 380 calories, but the shakes had different labels on them. So one read 620 calories and one read 140 calories. After drinking the shakes, the researchers monitored their ghrelin levels, which is a hunger hormone, um, often triggers more hunger. So when ghrelin's high, hunger ends up coming back up and gets really high. Um, And satiety signals. The, uh, the participants who drank the 620, quote-unquote, calorie-labeled shake had lower ghrelin levels and reported feeling full and satiated. The group who with the 140-calorie-labeled shake had the opposite effect. They had higher ghrelin levels, and they weren't as satiated or full, even though both shakes were in the exact same uh category nutritionally speaking so these these shakes were all the same amount of calories except one group believed that they were 620 calories one group believed they're only 140 really there were 380 so if we don't believe that the mindset controls some of these adaptations and responses to what we're doing from a genetic or a hormonal perspective or anything and this isn't about genes but this is going to show how powerful the mind can be with diet training nutrition all that Um, if we believe that the mindset didn't do it it's just science physiology all that well, then it wouldn't matter which one was labeled what. We, our satiety signals would kick in, right? But they didn't. The people who believed they had a lower calorie shake were more hungry, had a higher spike in a hunger hormone called ghrelin because their mind perceived them to be more hungry because they thought they only consumed 140 calories. Whereas the group that consumed is 620 calories believed that they were more full and satiated, which sent the hunger hormone ghrelin down and they reported not needing more food. Because they believed that they were full, even though everybody consumed the same amount of calories. And to double down on this placebo or expectancy effect, there's another study that I've, I've referred to multiple times, and it's one of my favorites. It's called anabolic steroids, the physiological effects of placebos. So uh, researchers in this one took 15 lifters and had them train for seven weeks. Um, this first part, I actually wasn't aware of what study is actually really cool, uh, telling them that the people who get the best results would be given free steroids in seven weeks. The lifters put a combined total of 22 pounds on their bench, military press, seated press and squat on average for, for lifters who are actually already lifting these, like, remember they took 15 lifters, people who were already proficient with lifting experience to put 22 pounds on their totals in seven weeks is actually a really good number. Um, and it was just off of the pure motivation of getting free steroids, right? Now, some people listening will be like, well, I wouldn't even want steroids. That wouldn't motivate me. I'm not sure how they did, but they must have weeded out anybody who didn't want steroids, I would assume. Um, So these people came into it. It would be equal to somebody coming into a study and saying, I'm gonna give you blank, put insert whatever you really want. If you put, if you maximize this training, like whoever gets the best results gets this reward at the end, essentially. And everybody improved quite a bit. Then they took six lifters, so the six participants uh, who had the best lifts, they took six of them basically, um, to join the steroid trial, right? These are the people that they would give steroid to. They told them that they were taking 10 milligrams of Dianabol, which for those listening, that is a type of steroid that has been around for years that bodybuilders, strength athletes take really well. Um, I don't personally know, but I just have read about it. And I know many professional level bodybuilders who take this, Um, but they were really just taking placebo pills. So they weren't taking anything. They trained for another four weeks and put a combined total of 100 pounds on those same four lifts, meaning their rate progressed increased about eight times just because they thought they were on steroids. So in seven weeks with a reward at the end, they put on 22 pounds, which is great. But in four weeks due to placebo of believing they were on a drug that was going to supercharge their performance, they put on a hundred pounds in combination, right? So this, again, this isn't one person putting on a hundred pounds of their total in four weeks. It's combined on average together, right? Um, But that's insane. That's eight times the beginning. And it's just because they believe they're on that. So the point of me saying this guys is you truly can placebo yourself into this. So You can't really dive into too much of this genetic stuff and then put yourself in a bad position because the truth is, is the ranges are quite wide and most people are going to be in a very normal range and very, very few people, in fact, remember 0.0003 for some of these uh, types of genes are going to be in the anomaly side. Um, And that means most of us are pretty fucking average, right? We might be a little less average, a little more average, but most of us are in this range and we're fully capable of getting results, but our mind is going to control how our body responds to what we do. So the more you tell yourself your genetics suck, the worse your results are gonna be and the more your genetics are gonna suck. The more you believe everything I'm telling you, which is studied and based on research, everything I'm, I'm reading right now, I'm citing in this description, so you can take this word and you can use this as education to remember that your lifestyle, your choices, your mindset, your perception of the results you're gonna get is actually gonna determine the vast majority of the success you see. So you need to wipe your slate clean of these thoughts of having bad genetics. It's probably not genetics based on research. It's most likely epigenetics and how you live your life, and you can change that. It is in your control. So my conclusion, in both cases, it takes consistency and patience, which is why most studies on this just suck. It just takes too long, right? With good genetics, with bad genetics, with steroids, with anything, um, most time you got, I mean, you can't take away hard work and patience, right? So A lot of times we can't study this too in depth because it would take a really long time to do the study and we just don't have the funds or the time to do that in in labs, right? Not we as in me, but these researchers. Um, Genetics do play a big role in responsiveness and starting points. So I'm not gonna lie to you, they do matter. Um, Some may have a slight head start compared to other people, uh, but much of it is luck. You just happen to find that style of training that matches your makeup early on and spend a lot of time doing it You're winning the lottery for your physique if you do that. And we all have the chance to do that if we're smart and intelligent about it, which what I would recommend is finding a training style you enjoy, stick with it diligently and try to progress really hard be patient. Really stick with it and get after it for about three to six months. If your body is not responding at all, switch up the style of training you're doing. That's the best bet we can do. And most people who do an undulated style of training are probably going to get the best of both worlds and be just fine anyway. But if you start to notice that on your lower rep days, you just feel better, respond better, to lift every, then maybe you do more low rep training, less high rep training. It's that simple, right? We don't need to overcomplicate this. Um, Now you can somewhat trick your mind into believing you have great genetics, like I just talked about, because a lot of it is epigenetics and what you focus your mindset on will happen. But the truth is there's no real accurate way of testing genes. uh, So we're wasting our time stressing about what we can't control. So most of the studies on genes focus on one gene at a time. And there's too many genes for us to really determine that that gene matters enough to change the whole game. Because usually, it's one of many genes and we need many genes, which is a 0. 0.0003 chance and likelihood of us being able to have all these genes in place to see absolutely ideal and optimal results. Um, and even in fat loss, genetics do play a role, like I said, but it's so minor and it doesn't affect the process of fat loss. It just really just affects your starting point more than anything. Maybe a little bit of stubbornness, but it's more of an excuse and a scapegoat to not do the hard work consistently than anything else. And I say that with complete empathy because I've used that excuse on myself. I've used it with clients and thinking like, damn, this person has bad genetics. But the truth is, 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 you know, and I've thought this for a while now, but this research just kind of nails the coffin shut, you know, like, I mean... Genetics do matter for a starting point. Genetics do matter more for performance than muscle growth and, and uh, fat loss. And don't get me wrong, when it comes to bodybuilding, genetics matter a lot for anatomy. So what I mean by that is when we're judging a bodybuilder, we're judging their symmetrical Ability to be a bodybuilder, meaning are their biceps symmetrical? Do their biceps look the same on both sides? Is their muscle belly the right circumference and diameter to give it that full look, but not too long, not too short, very wide? You know, your horseshoe, is it shaped well on your tricep? So, Those things are, that's genes, 100%. Your genetics determine the insertions of your muscle in the lengths of your muscle belly, thickness of muscle belly. So genes play a huge, huge role in bodybuilding professionally. They absolutely do. But when it comes to building muscle, performance, fat loss, they do not matter as much as most people believe. They do matter enough to change your starting point or potentially make it a little bit harder for your body to respond to training initially. But at the end of the day, we can all get results. This isn't evident enough to show us that genetics matter um so much that they stop us from getting results and that's the biggest takeaway guys do not let this be an excuse any longer get after it we've all said it i've said it but the truth is genetics may play a role but they are not stopping you from losing fat or building muscle or changing your physique and your health your lifestyle your decisions your mindset and the actions you take with your training and nutrition do